What is the crack? Hmm? Welcome to episode 8 of the Kevin Doherty podcast. My guest today is Chris McMahon. I met Chris when both of us got an opportunity to teach English to kids in Spain during our college days in UL. Over a decade later, he's still interesting, hilarious, and one of my favorite people. I love the guy. We chatted about a bunch of stuff, including emigration, life in Boston, being happy, overcoming adversity, and the power of gratitude. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you helped spread the word by recommending it to a friend or sharing it on your Instagram stories and tagging me at the Kevin Doherty podcast. Thanks for listening. How are you getting on, Chris? Very well. Long time no see, man. Was the last time we hung out around Christmas in Galway? It was. As it speaks his wedding, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Speaks and Laura's wedding. Um, geez, that was only the second wedding I've been to, but um, it, it was so much fun and it was so good to see everybody. Um, oh, it was, it was incredible. Like, I, I also hadn't been to a lot of weddings until maybe three, four years ago, but they're coming fast and quick now. And like so many of them can blend together just because they've all the like strict steps that a wedding has to be and theirs was not traditional and it was it was it was awesome. And uh you got to do the best man speech, if I recall. Oh Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so under under prepared because everything was non traditional, obviously. So I'll tell you what he told me. Uh he said, uh speaks, he was like, can you just uh speak talk about love for like sixty seconds? Oh, Jesus Christ. And I'll, I'll be honest, I was trying to get him to get you and or Craig to do it instead. I was at first I was like, yeah, sure. No bother. And then I kind of thought about it for a while. And I was like, you know, Kevin, Craig, you know, they're much better speakers. I think I think they're they're the way you want to go. And true to form, he came back with like a really genuine response that I couldn't opt out of. He was like, it's it's less, you know, you know what the content is going to be and more who's saying it. I'm like, oh, you fucker, I got to do something good now. <laughs> um. But yeah, uh, just I, I had like three or four points that I wanted to hit on, and I'm like, okay, it's fine. And I showed up then on the day of. Listen to me complaining about nerves on someone else's wedding day. Um, <laughs> but there was someone else on Laura's side that was doing a similar speech, and she had like uh, things printed off and written. And I saw that, and it's that same fear you got in school of just, oh Jesus, I'm not prepared. Like if I look down at my wearing pants, this is going to be bad. Um, she got up and she read this beautiful thing, so that was my next mistake, hardly my first mistake at this point of not going before her because she read out this beautiful thing and I had to go up and just, just you know, try and hit on the notes. I liked it, man. Um, if I recall, you kind of, you compared love to nearly like a, a partnership throughout life, wasn't it? That was exactly it, that I kind of, um, the idea of the labels that come with weddings and stuff, you know, there's husband and wife, bride and groom and it's probably that old-fashioned ideas of what go along with those individual roles but like I, I was saying how i prefer the term partnership because um and i even had a whole bit that got cut out about liking it to like a midfield partnership like how one <laughs> like one i thought you were gonna say gonna something like that. uh oh, back in the old soul trader days <laughs> no so i'm glad i cut that out but it was it was um just saying how an ideal partnership, you know, it's whatever the partnership needs at the time. So if one person want to kind of wants to chase out and pursue something, the other person will sit back and hold down the fort 
And I had like two or three more examples of that. And I was like, you know, and that's what makes a really strong midfield partnership. But like they all kind of did work on both ways of like the wedding and then the relationship itself. That ultimately that's what that point kind of was. It's that, you know, it's, it's filling in gaps for each other. And like Speaks and Laura are both very ambitious people and they're doing all these things now. And this didn't make it into the speech, but it was it's it's, it's um, really a good sign of the two of them that with one person's pursuing something, the other one's really supportive. And that doesn't just mean like I support you. It kind of means doing what's need be to let them go off and chase whatever it is they want to do. So that's kind of the partnership role is that, you know, not the, the, the husband does this, the wife does this, the, the partnership does its what's the expression like what's good for the goose is good for the gander like doing what the partnership needs in that moment in time versus the individuals yeah it's sort of like give and take based on the context and the time that's exactly it and your ability to condense it right there is exactly why i wanted you to do it instead of me <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it was a few days before the wedding i was having uh points with you and craig who i was trying to swap in for me and i i had an idea of what i was going to say and i casually brought up the two of you hey, what would you two say if you were doing that and off the cuff, the two of you came out with these brilliant things. And I'm like, God damn it. Because I had one pre-prepared in my head. And I was like, they, they pulled something out of their arse. It's already better. <laughs> what I thought was really sweet as well was they both wrote each other love letters and then put them into that kind of that box with the bottle of wine. Yeah. The only thing, the only thing that I had a little bit of, uh, I was like, that box is not going to hold up that amount of time. That was a, that was a rickety little box. I don't know how it was going to stay closed. I don't know. Are they burying it? How long is it supposed to be buried? I think maybe 10 years. Oof. I mean, it's quarantine time now. They probably should. <clears throat> I think it's justified. Yeah, true, true. Um, speaking of quarantine, what is it like over in Boston at the moment? Yeah, so fine day to day. Um... Because I, I imagine yourself and everyone else just sees, like, how is America dealing with the quarantine, which is a very different question. Boston, it's fine. We're not we're not trapped in our houses. You have to wear masks when you're outside. But again, like, you, you won't get thrown across a bonnet of a car for, like, not having your mask on. Um, so, like, I've gotten a few looks, and I had a bit of a passive-aggressive argument with a guy because I was, I was out in front of my house yesterday. I didn't have a mask, and he was, like, covering his face. And, like, where's your mask? He was in a car without a mask, by the way. Um... But, like, other than the passive-aggressive little passing things like that, you're fine to leave, like, go for a walk, go for a run, and just keep, like, the six feet apart and stuff like that. So day-to-day, it's all right. I mean, America had, has a pretty well-established delivery system for most everything. So, you know, the, the getting groceries is just a bit of a logistics thing, but it can be done. You can still order from restaurants, and they'll drop it off, or you can come pick it up, so that's not totally shut down. Um... So the day-to-day is mostly fine, and a lot of the industries can work from home too, and a lot of them already had like work-from-home processes, so not a lot of stuff has had to come to a grinding halt. Um, Do you think and it's strange? As, oh, sorry, sorry. What's that? Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, you know, got a dog, which, like, so, so my day-to-day changed in tandem with it being forced to change because of COVID. So like many other people over here, at least, um, got a dog. This is perfect timing for because honestly, the big stress of getting a dog is how you're going to deal with it when you have to like go into the office every day and all these other things. And it's kind of very much taking what's the biggest frustration right now is you have to be at home a lot of the time and using it to do something where I wanted to do, except that you had to be at home a lot of the time. So it, it, it's, again, making the most of a bad situation and really, really grateful that able to 
be at home with the dog so much because I'm stressing thinking about how I'd be dealing with the dog having to go into the office every other day and I don't know how people do it they're just balls of love as well like it's it they're incredible animals incredible oh it's so so nice like he wasn't supposed to sleep in the bed that lasted like 10 days (laughs) now he sleeps like crossways what's the Dylan Moran line about like when kids sleep in a bed like they could always lie you know from top to bottom like the most of us but they didn't choose their own positions the crucifix and the swastika come to mind the way they just like (laughs) contort themselves to take up as much real estate as possible but um no it's incredible it's so so nice am i right in thinking were you a cat person at one stage i am i i'm one of those that i wouldn't say i'm a dog or a cat um like my nickname is the house cat over here it unfortunately came up on a camping trip when they were saying how tough he's a good bit of fun to have around but he's pretty useless in a practical situation <laughs> and the great thing is it's it's tempered expectations in every aspect of my life they're like, uh, you think Toph would bring over something, something? He's a house cat. He, no, he's going to do what he wants to do. So it's kind of brought all these expectations, which has made my life immeasurably easier of just like the house catish, strolling in, doing whatever they want. I find that very uh, likable about cats. They kind of just, it's, it's, you don't have to worry about what they think of you. It'd be very clear what they think of you. Um, and they're pretty independent, which is kind of funny. They're just kind of dicks. And I find that funny. <laughs> So yeah, I like dogs and cats. I like dogs and cats for very different reasons. Like dogs are big balls of love, and it's absolutely lovely. Um, but cats are just kind of dickheads, and I find that funny. I get you. I get you. Um, do you have a plan to like train the dog properly, or what? What's your kind of uh, viewpoint on that? Yes. So um, Becca's brother and uh, sister-in-law are both vets, so that's very convenient hotline to have. Um, Vietnam or. <laughs> Oh yeah, they were real young. Like they, they, they got it under the wire. Um, so it's really good to have. And like we have friends here that have dogs as well. So we have like a bunch of people rather than just always running to Google about what to do. Like, hey, how did you deal with this? But for training, we did a bit of preliminary superficial research of like how to train the dog, do's and don'ts. And with that, I'm, I'm learning a lot of like backwards techniques that I had for, I thought you're supposed to do with a dog, but you know, raising pets in Ireland, like all the stuff that, oh no, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. An example being that, like, if they do something in the house, like, you don't rub their nose in it. Like, that yes. now is kind of considered, yes. Dog so, and it makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, it's supposed to be a lot of positive reinforcement versus, like, negative, don't do this. So you praise and reward what you want them to do versus coming down on them for what you don't want them to do because it's just not sinking in. That makes sense. Um, One video that really highlighted something, like, I had a dog years ago uh, when I was living in the home house back in Limerick. But we had no idea how to raise a dog. We just did it by the seat of our pants. And even one simple thing that I only realized there about a month ago by watching a little dog video is if you watch them lick their lips in a certain way, it means that they've become very, very nervous and they might actually act out like violently because they're so uncomfortable. But I never put that together that if a dog it's a very very specific type of lick compared to when they're happy jesus that's it because like they don't have all these facial cues that you can do so they obviously have to do it in different ways but like i thought of there when i was talking about the do's and don'ts that we thought were normal for pet rearing the example that i always think of um is 
remember when you were in school and you had to read out certain pa uh, passages, whether in English or, or French or whatever it was. So like a different person read out a different line or a different whatever. It's been proven 10 times over since that is not only not good, it's detrimental to learning because you won't be paying attention to what other people are saying. You'll be so nervous when you're actually reading that you won't take it in. And like years and the hours that were put nationwide, at least in Ireland, for teaching kids to read that way. And it's like, oh no, that was time absolutely wasted. That's true. And like the one thing I think that was on my mind if you had to stand up is if it's a warm day, is there arse sweat on the fucking the school chair? <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's anxiety one on one, more than any any actual reading learning. Can I ask how long have you been in the states now? All I know is I flew over on your birthday. Yes, um, yes, and I remember <laughs> I was delighted because at the time you were living in Dublin, I was considering moving up there, and then I got a job offer. Text you, I was like, yeah, gonna be up there, buddy, and you were like, I'm gonna be like whatever five thousand kilometers away or wherever it is. The rudest birthday present. Um, how many years was it? I want to say 2014. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, so August 2014. Um, I suppose, going back to that initial decision, what were the factors that were, I suppose, influencing you at the time? And like, what was the overall decision-making process for you to move to America? Yeah, so um, I was born in the States. So I have had like dual citizenship uh, like forever, pretty much. So it was always on the cards, or at least it felt like a wasted opportunity not to use that to some degree, whether it's like over for short term or do it. So it was always kind of um, like plan B, um, at least like through college and then shortly after. I planned to do it sooner. And Gary, as you know, friend of ours, was already over in the States here in Boston. Mm -hmm. And he knew I had the passport. So he was kind of like knocking on my door he knew i was most likely to get over and snowball and get a bunch of people over so he was working on me i said yeah sure i'd love to do it right after my undergrad was the plan but like i my degree not great for much didn't have a lot of prospects and my parents were kind of gave me some advice that they were kind of like i don't know if this is the right thing to do and being like very early 20s i kind of was like okay well my parents don't think it's the right thing to do i don't know if don't know what's the right thing to do wait up with everything so i kind of had to email gary like five weeks or something before i came over like and he still quotes it to this day like the opening line of the email was gary i wish this was an elaborate joke but i can't, can't come over because <laughs> he was looking at places i think early yeah i think he was looking at places for us to stay and he was super excited uh so he likes to bring that up from time to time but uh, a few years went by um i did some other things I, I worked somewhere else i went back to college for a year i got a master's and i worked for a year in dublin and then I kind of took another crack at it. So pretty much the plan, roughly in the back of my head, in hindsight, I kind of realized that I guess I did have somewhat of a plan because it was just trying to do the same thing, but with some more uh, proverbial money in the bank, just some like experience or something, something that'll increase my chances of actually not having to come back in six months, not to boomerang, um, unfortunately. So then I, I was in Dublin, as you said. I never really loved Dublin. I think I'm in the minority of Irish people. A lot of people love it um dublin and london um don't love them never really appealed to me i, I, sh I surely i'll do like a, a flying visit but they never really felt where i want to be mm -hmm. so the fact that i was a year for dublin before i moved over that was to get experience and also was validation of okay this is not for me tried to settle in um don't and gary was continuing to like work on me with with pictures of him on jet skis in the summertime and living the american dream and uh <laughs> so my ancestors uh, 
took a not, not a plane. They probably didn't take a plane, but went to the states um, and did it. And what I do remember, and it was a pretty defining moment when my parents again tried to talk me out of it. I've been like, I don't know if it's the right decision. It's pretty risky. And I kind of said, okay, thank you. No, I'm doing it. So I kind of went against the parent wishes um, and flew over. And that was a big thing because you'll, you'll like petulantly disobey your parents, but like do this or don't do that and you'll do it. But it's a big thing to go against their advice for something as large as that. And it was very, very lovely moment like a year or two later. Uh, my mom, my dad being like, you, you, you made the right decision. Like things have, have broadly worked out and kind of got a job and then like they see me doing okay over here so it was really really enjoyable and it was a really life affirming lesson of like don't always take at face value the person above you what they say it's like that can be professional or anything like you trust your gut trust your opinion you can be right they're going to say they're a bit you don't have to listen to it always so um landed over um enjoyed the first few months and then so uh, the first few months, it was jet skis. It was everything Gary promised. It was great. Summertime, it was August. I quickly got into country music. I I, I, under, I understood the appeal instantly because you make that face, and aptly so, because I never liked country music because all I ever heard was like the stuff that my dad would listen to, which is not great. And I remember this, the first week in the States, Gary had a, a soft top Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> um just just think think Zoolander. So we're coming back from the office with some beers to go have like some 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 barbecue or something. And like like pop, pop country music was playing, which is like super, super popular now and everywhere, I guess. But I only noticed this as I came over here. So I had like beers in the back, driving around Jeep Wrangler, going back to have a barbecue and there was some country music playing. And I just kind of had one of those, I get it, I get it now moments where I kind of understood when country music is supposed to be played and how you're supposed to enjoy it. I'm like, now I get it. <laughs> Um, was was Gary one of the the biggest reasons that you decided to move to Boston? A hundred percent, because I wanted to move to the states, and there was a few versions of how that could go. I mean, it, it came down to one or two really. There was like um, move to Boston on the East Coast. What are the pros? Like Gary's there. I have a base. I'm not just landing into the airport and have to like live out of a hostel and look for accommodation, which was super super stressful. Um, or like go to the West Coast, which was like a big appeal for me because I've done like J1s and stuff um, and like done gone to San Diego and I certainly enjoy the sun. I don't like the cold. So it was either, okay, do I go fully go for it and go way West or do I kind of stay on the East coast where I have a, a bit of a base friend Gary's already there. My sister was living in Montreal with her husband at the time, which is very, very close. Um, so it kind of seemed like the safer of the radical options to move to Boston. And I also just heard great things. What I've noticed as well is that, like if you're deciding to make a go of the expat life, if you're from Ireland, it is really, really nice to have a core base of Irish friends. And it seems like you've cultivated a very, very nice core group of Irish friends in Boston. Oh yeah. Super, super. That's, that's a big thing. And we've talked about this before of like, you can go to the nicest city in the world and live there, but what's it worth if you don't really have like the base of people to go hang out with? Um, and like very lucky in Boston that like, you know, we, we've managed to find a bunch of other, um, implants over here that are similarly minded, like to have a good time. And it's, it's, it's big appeal because my plan initially when I did move to Boston was all right, Boston for a year or two, earn credit after I learn what credit is, and then maybe go to the West coast and, you know, live the dream. But I've been here five years now with no plans to move. I absolutely love it because, um, you know, the 
among others, the base of people that we have here. I like being on the East Coast. I like the Boston. I've traveled to some other cities and towns in Boston a lot in the, or in the States in the last few years. And I find myself loving Boston more the more that I travel. Um, but absolutely, having the base of people is as much what keeps me here. And even though there was a big, uh, like a big base of, you know, friends back home in Ireland, and you can let me know if this is still the case, it's, it's, it's easier to meet up with people over here than sometimes it felt back home in Ireland. Because it seems like when I meet up people at Christmas, I'll be asking them, hey, how are you? How are you? And people that have been in Ireland are asking each other, hey, how are you? How are you? That, you know, people have their own lives. It, it, people don't meet up as often as, you know, they maybe could because they, they're an hour away from each other, like an hour away from each other in Ireland seems a lot further than an hour away from each other over here, I guess. Yeah, I think you are definitely right. Um, what I've found is I have maybe a core group that I try to see as much as possible. And then if other people can come, great. But there's certain people I'd probably prioritize with in terms of time. The, the circle gets smaller as you get older. It does, but the circle gets closer as well. It's not this fucking rough outline like absolutely like that that was a big thing a few years ago I was like when i was trying to like get a party going or trying to get a few drinks going it was a numbers game the more people that come the better it will be and as i got older realizing no if these three or four people are there i don't really care so like kind of make sure these three or four people are able to come and like don't really matter about getting as many people as possible because often it's better because you can have like proper chats with three or four people versus like having a rager with 10 people and you know the photos look like it's fun but you don't get to chat to the folks it's very true like um definitely in terms of friends you appreciate it more in terms of quality versus quantity but one thing that's always stuck in my head and it's such a simple little quote actions speak louder than words like everybody can tell you oh man can't wait to meet up we'll do this and that if it doesn't happen they didn't really want to meet up with you do you know what i mean as in like there's factors that go into whether or not you can see people but you will see and communicate with the people who want to communicate with you. That's it. I'm still kind of learning versions of that recently. And like Gary single mind, they're the same mind of this too. Like he says it like when he's trying to decide, you know, whether to do these things or like do favors or help people out. Like, would they do it for you? And like, have they done it for you? Cause most people have had the opportunity to be super, super nice. So like, that's a really simplified way to like, you know, treat people and put yourself other people of like would they do it for you no but the, a big thing um and 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 beck and i talked about this too is is um if someone doesn't or isn't willing to do that for you there's no need for bad blood you just don't do it for them because uh sometimes there can be some real animosity of if if person a does something for person b and then person b doesn't reciproc- reciprocate and then person a is like really pissed off they're like how dare they okay well learn the lesson to not keep doing those things. Otherwise it's just going to build. But in reality, if you just realize that there's not that there's not going to do that for you, don't do it for them and you'll get along great. What I've sort of realized over time is that you can be really, really close with somebody in a specific context and a specific period of your life. But then sometimes you kind of realize that as you move through life and as you maybe develop a stronger sense of self and what you want to do your views change your geography becomes an issue and sometimes you were perfect together in a certain context and it's sad sometimes but you realize that maybe 
that might be all you have of the relationship. Yeah. And like that, that never hammers home more than like when someone's having a life event or a birthday party and all the different social circles of their life show up and they have to be like the five different people they've been in their lives. And it's absolutely, it's like a Jim Carrey movie, just going from circle to circle, changing their personality. Um, and like, you, absolutely, you do less of that as you, as you get older, just for that reason, because people either drift apart, they realize, no, that's not me anymore, or what have you. Isn't it strange when you see how a person interacts with your group, but then you come into contact with them in a different context or in a different social setting, and you see that there's nearly a chameleon likeness about them. It's, it's an odd thing. Even if it's small stuff, it is kind of, oh, they have a bit of that in their, in their pocket, that you know, they're, they, they have at least some awareness, so they're doing it subconsciously, that they're adapting ever so slightly in different social circles. I've, I think I've tried more and more just to focus on being authentic, just be yourself, no matter where you are. Like, what I'd love people to think about me is, if I met Kev in the pub, he's Kev. If I met Kev in work, he's Kev. You know, that sort of way. It's like, yeah. I'm, I'm trying, like, and I, I definitely was guilty of it, probably in my early 20s, where because I grew up in Limerick, I was a certain way with these friends. But then we met each other in Spain, and I probably had nearly a blank canvas to be more who I was at the time. So yeah. I was probably slightly a different person with you guys and then even when I started working in America I had to put on a, a little bit of a different persona when I was coaching soccer but yeah it's nearly it's, I think maybe when I when I got to about the age of 25 I just started realizing that just be yourself like it's fucking it's exhausting to keep plate spinning and people don't give a fuck you it, there's so That's much it. of it's in your head we're doing it for you and like it's so so satisfying when like yourself included like a, a bunch of friends have come to visit in boston the last few years and i have a base of people over here some irish some american that i've largely met through work and like when you're able to have like you know those different social circles meet as i kind of said and everyone just gets along like a house on fire and nothing has to be kind of, it's it's really satisfying of like oh this is awesome like i knew they'd kind of get along or even if you know, just, just to see that they can chat about stuff and they'll get along fine. And, you know, it's not too far apart, the person that you're being, I guess, with those social groups, that they can just get along like that. Can I ask, so you've been over there, the Bones, of six years. What has kept you in America? Like, what do you love about the country? Um, I have not really looked at moving anywhere else, I guess. And when I was in Ireland, I was always kind of weighing up Where's the next spot? Where am I going to be? Where am I kind of going to settle? Never had that since I've been in Boston. So like the most that I had initially when I came over was maybe looking at the West Coast of, hey, do I want to go and live in the sun? But like, it's kind of, there's, there's no next geographical step of like, this is where I want to go next. So there's nothing, uh, there's no pull factor. Another one is like, what, what's, what's pushing me out of here? Like not a whole lot because the social circle there's a there's like some really good roots here now in Boston that um, I'd feel like I was losing and leaving because when I was leaving Ireland it sucks obviously because I have a big social base of people but you know again it's one of those things where you'd only get to see them like every few weeks which is unfortunate but like 
you know, what's what what can you gain versus what what would you lose if you did it? And right now, I can't see any. There's nothing on the table that could be gained from moving away from Boston that wouldn't be outweighed by the losses. Like the social circle, you know, it's absolutely great. Um, certainly a big one. My sister and her family now live in New Jersey, which is like a five-hour drive south, which is not a whole lot since I've been in the States. I realize it's very, very close. That's absolutely massive. She's got three kids now. That's a big, big priority, like being close to them. Um, and also a five-hour flight home if I ever need. Like my parents are in the West Coast, right into Shannon. I'm home. I'm right by Boston, Logan. Like I can be home in six hours which is crazy. So like if need be, I'm never more than six hours away from family and the social circle that I have here is, you know, it, it's, it's really strong. It sounds as well like nearly your perspective on happiness has changed. And like what you said at the start of that really resonated with me where when I was younger, I was nearly always looking six months down the line to, oh, when I start doing this thing, this is, this is when I'll be happy because that's, that's that nearly that, light at the end of the tunnel this this is what's going to make sense for me but as soon as you get to that point you're still always nearly looking like what's over there is that something that i could do will i be regretting this if i don't push myself in that direction whereas it seems like you've slipped into a more positive thought pattern of why am i always looking over the next hill like appreciate what i have now yep and a lot of that kicked in as soon absolutely right a lot of that's when I moved to Boston, like gradually, the biggest inkling you'll have with that is maybe looking at a different job in Boston, but there's no like looking over the like be awesome since I've moved to Boston, like how things have worked out. Um, so it is tough to imagine like uprooting and going somewhere else, unless you know the dozen or so people want to up and move with me. That would be the dream. Let's all buy a suburb somewhere, and that would be great. That's that's the only thing to get me to move. We all go buy a suburb in the middle of nowhere, but um. Beyond that, there's not a whole lot to be gained from, from, from up and going. And it's always, I suppose, a bittersweet thing when you leave Ireland. Like, what are the things day to day, week to week, if any, that you kind of, they might play on your mind? Like, what, what would you miss about Irish life? Um, so day to day rarely weighs in me because we're in Boston have the Irish circle of friends. So honestly, like you, you still see it in your social news feed. Like you still have the Irish jokes and sense of humor, which honestly is 90% of it. That's a big, big thing. If I was just chatting with Americans all the time, I'd feel it a lot more. Um, we were able to get a lot of the Irish foods. Um, so like there's, there's, a, there's an Irish store nearby run by Indians, um, which, you know, you can get all the good chocolate and all the stuff like that, which is absolutely great if you're, if you're willing to cough up a paper. So if need be, you can do that. So a lot of the food stuff, it's all right. Um, like the Irish, like the, the Irish language in your ear and stuff, that's all right. And that is a big thing, just hearing the Irish accents. Because uh, me and some friends a few years ago did like a trip down the West Coast. So it was uh, myself, Gary, and our friend Sean. So we landed in Seattle in the Northwest and drove down. And there was some other friends of ours, uh, Kelly, Kelly Irish. Um, she was in Los Angeles. So we stopped in there and like we, we stayed with them for a night. And they end, uh, ended up like, partying with us the next day following us down to Newport Beach and we like we had we had a night out there as well and they were saying like how good it was just to kind of have the crack with some Irish people again because they were there for a few years at that point but there is just something about you know the Irish banter that they probably were more isolated from on the, on the west coast other than each other so those are the things that I guess I, I, I'm topped up on family obviously is unfortunate but the fact that my sister and and, and the kiddies are over here I think is is, is um, invaluable 
What I do miss, and it tends to just come in wholesale when I go back at Christmas, is obviously the parents. Because <clears throat> until like I'm at home and actually chat with them, like it's it's unfortunately like it's very easy to like have uh, not feel like you're not there when you're not there, if that makes sense. Because I, I have a million things going on, I'm pretty distracted when I'm over here. But when I go back and things slow down, uh, I do get sad when I'm uh, coming back to the states or I think about it or whatever. And um, you know what I, I think about then is like, what's the best thing I could do if I moved home? Like, would that make them happy? Ultimately, they'd be happy for six months. But if kind of if I left left a decent job and a decent life, like I think ultimately, because my parents do care about me, they'd want me to be happy, and they'd feel worse if I came back and was just miserable. So honestly, it's like the parents because technology these days, you can chat with friends, you can catch up as we are right now, and it's great, and it's kind of doubly sweet that like when you meet up at Christmas, you have ten million things to catch up on, which is kind of there's a nice thing there. There always seems to be nearly. Uh a common theme with Irish expats. Like I've, I've talked to a few friends in the last couple of weeks who are living in various places, a couple of them in the States, one of them in Canada. And a lot of the things you spoke about there are very, very similar to what they talk about. Like Christmas is such a big time for coming home. And there is always that sense of guilt that you've left your roots to start a new life. And while you're doing so well and you're enjoying things there's nearly always that call back to the homeland specifically about the parents and what they mentioned a lot as well is that sometimes when they've come home they've nearly been a victim of their own expectations because you might have two weeks 14 days to see as many people as possible but also to spend as much quality time with the parents and if something goes a little bit wrong or there's a certain negative interaction, you're nearly furious for a couple of it's days because you're like, yes, and you didn't want yeah. it to go like that. Yeah, everything's weighted because you need to have like a year's worth of family time in two weeks. So like if you did out the math of like, you know, you're home for two weeks, what's that net out of like one day is worth two months or something like that. So um, absolutely, that you want it to go as, as, as good as possible. But I think you hit the nail on the head there, that you're very much aware of what you left behind when you kind of go back. Because you can go and you can move somewhere and you're aware of what you brought with you and what you can replicate. But until you go back at Christmas, you kind of see that, like, ah, oh, my family's behind. My parents are behind, which, which does suck. Would you ever find as well that uh, I've kind of noticed this a few times when I'd go home that sometimes I might slip into a bit of a child state with the parents where... I might overreact to something irrationally, but it's because we've had uh, a relationship where obviously they've been my parents all my life. And when you're in the home house, you have 20 years experience of being a child and kind of maybe being under the thumb when you're a bit younger. And so it's, it's nearly like a, an authority thing or like, if I go home, my mother always wants to know where I'm going, who I'm going to be with. Yeah. And in adult life, you don't have that. And I've noticed sometimes, irrationally, I'll freak out a little bit. But when I analyze it the next day, I'm like, what the fuck was that like? Where did that come out of? There's a few things that they're at play there. When I Absolutely. When I think about that, like one is parents are able to get under your skin effortlessly without them trying. Yes. They'll just say something on a note. And you're like, what the hell? It's incredible. Like, can you be the calmest person in the world? You can achieve X, Y, and Z abroad, but like, you'll go back and they'll say something and you'll just get angsty about stuff. 
and like I've not been angsty like outside of the house for 10 years where is this coming from and like what's a funny one this is a Gary story too but I'll just steal him he can't say anything about it. <laughs> he steals my jokes all the time I'll take some of his anecdotes um, but uh, he used to um, when he lived in Boston when I first moved over and he was working in Rhode Island so he had the bones of an hour maybe an hour and a half uh, drive each way every day so he'd, he'd like be making calls and stuff on the drive down but he was like driving a big uh, pickup truck make a heavy duty thing up and down like two to three hours every day for years and he went back to the, the, the home home in Ireland at Christmas and his mom was wary of him um, driving on the Irish roads so she wanted him to go out with his dad and just drive with the dad seat in the passenger seat for a while just so he could get used to it and he was explaining it with that same thing of like, I don't need that. And <laughs> even responding in that way, you're kind of taking the bait beautifully. Like, no, mom. When you compare Ireland to America, like obviously we grew up in a certain cultural context. Are, are there certain things now that you've implanted yourself in Boston, in America, in a different cultural context? Are there things that stand out as very strange very unusual or things that maybe took a little bit of time to understand the social norms oh yeah i mean some of them are just small little quirky things and some are like absolute big things that are part of every single day I get into a few but i mean like the more i think about the culture shock it's kind of unpacking your perception of how things are and what normal behavior is so like that's kind of what it is is that when you're irish and you go and live to the states and you realize okay that's that's not the way everyone behaves and you kind of read it as more and more like okay that's something that was kind of embedded in me of like this is the social and acceptable way to do it like some of the smaller ones um is um so before i moved to the states i tried to go on a strict diet for two months before i moved to the states because i was afraid you know of all the food over there i would get large which is eventually caught up with me but like i i've been in a pretty uh clean diet for the two months whatever beforehand so my stomach's probably as small as it ever was when I first moved over. And in the first few days, myself, Gary, and a friend Niall was here as well. We went out to like 99s, it's called. Just kind of like a... You can get so much food for 10 bucks, which kind of speaks volumes about the quality of the stuff. And just the size of the food was absolutely staggering. It was the first time I think I had to package food and take it up away. So like the size of the food was a big thing that was overwhelming. And what was more worrying is in three weeks, I, didn't, I wasn't even aware of the size of the food anymore. So, like, that was a big thing where it's the new normal. That's exactly what it is. Um, so, like, the way the restaurants are, it's kind of crazy. Even the culture of doggy bags is a bit strange, isn't it? That is foreign to me. That's why I said it was the first and last time that I did it, because I don't know if this is an Irish mammy lesson, but, like, get it into you. Eat all you can. It's a sign of, like, enjoying the meal and you know, almost masculinity associated with it. Like, no, put that away. <laughs> I don't think I've ever like gotten a dog bag other than that first time. One thing that you've mentioned to me a few times, like while, while the summers might be amazing, one of the big issues for you is the harsh Boston winter. What's your experience been like about that? So absolutely. And that, that was another factor why Boston or a selling point for Boston was the seasons. Like when you go to the West and I moved, is it like a bit of a change? You like variety and like four seasons in the year. Perfect. You can weigh it all up. You can adjust accordingly. Um, so I love the summer. What I will say is I actually think uh, autumn in, in Boston is better than anything else. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, I like sleeves. I like layers. I think it's the nicest way to go around. But the winter um, can suck. I had a 
ironically, trial by fire the first year because I landed in in August and then that February, was it February? What, that's, that winter was the worst winter in history. Yeah. I'm going to get the, 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 the inches metrics way wrong now, but I mean, like you, you're in the house for days, you're absolutely snowed in. Um, usually what happens, there'll be a big snowstorm, a few, few feet high or whatever. And then over the next day or two, it would like get, get slushed away or whatever. It would deteriorate back to normal. But what happened was um, that first winter, so it was 2014, 15, um, just got hammered again and again and again and again and again. And it was absolutely brutal. And just when that storm was leaving, and I thought I knew what having a jacket was. Um, my mom is somewhere like nodding her head. I told him, but like, uh, I just told, yeah, you need, you need winter gear. I'm like, yeah, sure. I think I know what that is. So when I got boots for like 20 bucks, just boots that were high, that's warm. I got a jacket that, you know, you know, was, was somewhat long. That's good enough. And I did not realize that, no, you need to invest in winter gear when you're over here. You need to cough up. Like, I don't have a Canada Goose jacket, but I mean, those are close to a grand or something and upwards of getting a, of getting a coat. And part of the reason why I don't do that is is not purely because I'm cheap. I get like, I cough up <laughs> the recent ones. But usually if you go for a few drinks in winter, you go into a bar, you take off your gloves, you take off your scarf, you take off your hat, you take off your jacket. And I just leave stuff. Like I, I, I have probably 17 individual gloves in my house because I just accept that you'll lose one here, you'll lose two there. So it's just such a liability. So I'm too scared to invest in heavy duty winter gear. But I did learn that first year with a terrible, terrible winter because I didn't have the good stuff. So I had to suffer through it. I was commuting on the train. So I had to walk to the local train stop in my gear that wasn't sufficient. Um, the train that year, it was a lot of above ground rails. So it would shut down because of the snow. So you'd be standing there for like 45 minutes. The train would eventually come. It would be full and there'd be people trying to pile on. So it was like a scene from The Walking Dead of people trying to get on um, trains and then the buses to like accommodate those. It was absolutely miserable. And that was going for months and months and months. And work was very stressful at that point too. And just when the winter was starting to clear, I'm just piling on the pity party now. Just when the snow was starting to clear, I like a game of indoor soccer on a Sunday, I ruptured my Achilles tendon. Shit, I remember that. Yes. Yeah, that was February. So that I landed into Boston in August. Had a few good weeks, those jet skis and, you know, driving around the Wrangler. Hey, this is great. And then bang, worst winter in history. Next bang was the sound of the Achilles in February. And that was me, surgery within a week, um, which was crazy. I was like, I, I couldn't stand in it for a week after that. I had a boot from, I was in a cast for a month, a boot for another month. Then it was in crutches for like a few months. I couldn't play soccer for 12 months after the accident. That was the time range they give you. Psychologically, what was that like for you? Because like mentally, you're looking at when the winter is going to end. And again, you're probably placing all of this value on when I get past this shitty winter, it'll be back to good times. Yeah. And then boom, snap the ankles. Uh Nowhere near as bad as my rant now just made it seem because <laughs> I was honestly so happy to be over in Boston. And like, this is what I wanted to do. It was such a fun time. Optimism was an all time high. I was maybe 24, 25. I was working at a uh, big digital marketing agency that like it was a big appeal of going to the States and working at a big company. I'd only work in like small little agencies or small little things. And I kind of felt in. So I didn't mind powering through all that to get into that high rise office there's free food and kind of, you know, there's like a bar on Thursdays and Fridays. That's what I wanted to get to. So like I, I was a bit, no, uh, 
unawares of it because that was my first few months. I thought that's just what it was. So my pace kind of adapted accordingly. All right, you got to put up with this winter. Everyone was telling me this is the worst winter in history. But I was like, all right, I guess this is just what you have to deal with to make, to enjoy the summers. When in reality, everything since has kind of been, everything's been rosy because that was my first six months there, which were just miserable. So it kind of set the tone for being pretty grateful. Hey, your legs work. Hey, the winter, it's not 10 inches or 10 feet of snow outside. You're absolutely fine. So in the moment, I was fine. I did hate the cold. I really, really hated the cold because I have very little tolerance for it. I mean, my hands are even cold now in the house and they just ache when it gets freezing. So I really hate that. But like as the years have gone on, I've continued to invest in better winter gears. I slowly, slowly learn. But what very much appeals to me, um, are you familiar with snowbirds, being a snowbird? No. So this is pretty common practice over here. So what it is, is um, an old colleague of mine does it a lot. So You'll, you'll, you'll live wherever, somewhere that has seasons like Boston most of the year. And then uh, in January, you'll go and you'll work on the West Coast for a few months. You'll just leave when it gets bad. And if you're in an environment where you can do that, do that. That, to me, is probably a dream. That will be the, the cherry, or that, that'll, that'll be me figuring it out, having it all. Is if I can get out of Boston January to March, that would be absolutely ideal. That's interesting as well, because like the way you were describing it, I thought that that was going to be a real kind of psychological issue but the overwhelming positivity like that's one thing i i've noticed about all americans there there seems to be uh maybe more of a, a sense of optimism over there that that things are possible have you have you noticed that since you've moved there or has it changed your perspective absolutely and like i would consider myself like since about seven eight years ago whatever it was um to be a pretty grateful person i think it makes a hell of a lot of things easier if you're just grateful for stuff but um, absolutely. And it's, it's been even magnified since I go back every, every year or whatever and I chat with people back home and just uh, people are almost looking for something to complain about. If there's nothing to complain about, they have nothing to talk about. And that bleeds into a lot of different things. Like if you're always looking for something to complain about, everything's always going to seem a bit worse. And like, you know, I was in a, a, a shitty situation back then. But like, I moved to Boston. I, I, I was having broadly a good time. I, I honestly, work was shitty. It was very, very stressful. So it was, all right, I don't have to do work for a few months. That's a massive, massive win. I get to chill out. I, I put the leg high. I played I played video games for two months. That's a win. And honestly, that's like another one of the silver linings where I kind of make the most of a bad situation now in quarantine. I'm, people are surprised when I say I'm an introvert, but it's be, they say you're an introvert or an extrovert based on how you get back to one like how you relax and like on Sundays, like I'm, I'm, I'm all socialed out and I just like to stay in the house and just do nothing. So what I'm seeing this quarantine as, and what I'm seeing is that that time period as is okay. You just get to do it in bulk. And when this is over, you can go be super social. Cause you got a bunch of like home days out in one, which was good. Those, um, those labels, introvert and extrovert, while I do agree with them, I find sometimes that, uh, people nearly use them as an excuse like it, it's really fascinating because like I kind of know that you like to use your weekend or at least a day a weekend to really recharge yourself but you're a really really outgoing guy who is naturally introverted whereas sometimes people who are introverted they nearly use that as an excuse it's like well I can't push myself in this direction because I've been lumped into this box. 
It is a weird one. And I mean, that, that's another thing where the house cat label has kind of helped me, where when I just want to go off and do whatever, I don't have to say, I'm an introverted, I need to get back to one. He's a house cat. Like, and there's a bunch of memes going around of like someone saying, like, I have this friend, they just disappear for hours, they only show up for food and attention, and they disappear again. Like, they're, they're a cat. <laughs> and so it's weirdly a more accurate and liberating label to be called a house cat than an introvert, because you can just show up when, you, when it suits you and leave when it suits you. Um, have you ever done that personality test where they put you into kind of a, a loose box where it's like red, yellow, blue, and green? And there's different sort of characteristics with each of those. I think the Myers Briggs, I think it's called, where it's like you're, you're a combination of letters. You're like a ISJR, those aren't the letters. But like they, there's a bunch of different combinations to depend that yeah. or to dictate what you are. I did those. And they tend to be pretty, pretty. Pretty good, but also I, I'm, there's much more science in that than horoscopes, obviously. But I mean, when you're reading those, you're looking for things to agree with. Like, oh, that is me. That is me. Yeah, and like what I again, it, while they are kind of a nice baseline where you can kind of learn a little bit more about yourself, it's kind of strange because sometimes people will use the fact that nearly they're predominantly red to just be a bit of an ass. It's like, oh, that's my personality type. It's like that is such a weird way to look at what. The, ex- the the thing was supposed to try and tell you what i think those tests uh provide in terms of value 10 times over because when i did it it was someone that worked in to do just and like our, our partner at the time was fascinated by this and like got all of us to kind of do it um and since then like I've, I've had like some direct reports that i've had to manage and give feedback to and stuff like that and like when, I, when i first started managing people i was like no i think i think people here are coddled i came in I, i've seen too many you know, American sport movies that you're going to come in and shake things up. It's like, no, people have been coddled and come in, got to tell them directly. And it was, it was, it was such a bad call. <laughs> and that what those kind of Myers-Briggs or other personality tests provide, the biggest thing is how you learn and how you provide feedback. Because um, I could very much see which one I was with those that I'm a bigger picture. Give me a bullet note. I'll work out the details myself, point me in the direction and I will kind of, jump into the tasks myself. When some people, they need a bullet list, they need the first three steps given to them. When I kind of saw that as a failing of like, oh, you can't, you can't get started. But it just means that's, that, that's just what they need. And you're working against yourself and you're making life more difficult if you expect everyone to deal with problems or take feedback the way that you take feedback. So identifying the different ways that people either take feedback or kind of learn made it a hell of a lot easier to communicate with people without issues. That's so true. Like, I I was probably thinking of it nearly as a singular thing because I've never been a manager of others in a professional context. And it's one of those where interpersonal skills, it's it's one of those things you never really learn it in school to an extent. You never really learn it in college. If you did a master's, there's not a big, big focus on it. But like, that's what life is. It's And it's nearly, it's nearly that idea of theory of mind where for some people it's very very difficult to put themselves in somebody else's mind and see that they have different thoughts it's like why aren't you seeing it the way i'm seeing it yeah yeah and i think our time in spain initially helped with that like obviously i needed to learn how people receive feedback in a professional sense what was really good is like when we were in spain obviously we had to like teach kids practical life skills like what's a bow and arrow which, <laughs> which is a bit more realistic now, which honestly is is kind of less funny in these times <laughs> how to how to mountain climb and hunt we're, we're three weeks away from hunger games um <laughs> like we had to teach, 
kids that had like two words of English, all this different stuff. So it kind of taught you how to communicate when you can't rely on too many words. So if three words can get the point across, use three, use body language, use all these social clues. It's such a weird team, strong team building exercise that I'd be shocked if it didn't exist for like professional development for companies of like, hey, you have to go and speak. You have to go and communicate this message to each other, but you can't use any words. So it really kind of helped boil things down and communicate something to someone, assuming that they have no base in the sense of you need to teach them this idea or, or this term and you can't have any assumptions of what they know. Go. And honestly, it's, it's helped in a lot of different ways for teaching people since or, or um, onboarding people with things. It's funny that you mentioned Spain. Like I still have such a, a nostalgic place in my heart for that period of time. Like what were we over there? Maybe six months maximum, but it felt like so much longer. It feels like a year or something. It was such a, such a big part. And it was very, very strange. Like when you came home and you interacted with people who weren't there, like I honestly felt like I was gone with Limerick, gone from Limerick probably over a year. And then I came back and they were like, Kev, we saw you like three weeks ago. Like what were you up to? Yeah, absolutely came back. And like thinking back now, it's, it's, it's almost cringe of how I thought I knew the world or just haven't been in Spain for six months, but it was mostly just very, very different. And I had a very different perspective on life and it did feel like an eternity. Definitely came back quite a different person. Um, but oh my God, such a good time. And especially like, cause, cause we were all kind of living together and working together. Like you and me among none of the others that we've mentioned, we, like we met over there. Like you make, you make friends for life over there in a much less grim sense. It's like, like war buddies. That's kind of like you meet in this environment, you're thrown together and you kind of, you, 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 you struggle together and you make the most of it. It's funny that you mention war buddies. Like I, I for for years, like I was trying to work out why Spain nearly made so much sense at a like a fundamental human level. It's like um, there's a book I've, I've probably mentioned this too many times now on this podcast, but uh, Tribe by Sebastian Younger, where he talks about how from an evil like an evolutionary perspective we are geared to live in small groups very very close to each other and heavily depending on each other and spain while while we were like teaching people and stuff like that and like that works incredibly meaningful but we were a small group basically a small tribe living together in a foreign a foreign environment it was very very mm -hmm. what the human experience should be and i think that's why it resonated with so many people over there. I mean, the accommodations certainly were tribal. I mean, with five of us living in a chair. Um, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, like, obviously there was the professional part of it where you kind of had to work together. The fact that we were almost in pairs and you were like typically with different people every other week, that was almost a great exercise in like getting to know people because you'd be friends, close friends with someone different every week if you're working with someone different. Because this, this chat to someone on a Saturday night of like, Hey, what do you do? What do you, but like working with them and ha like dealing with kids who are running around throwing rocks at each other together. Like you get to be mini parents for like five days and you definitely a lot closer because of it, because of it. Cause again, that partnership thing, you realize what your roles are and what these kids respond to. And like, what, what does, um, what do one of you do really well? And the other person do really well playing to each other's strengths. But all this subconscious stuff that not until years later, have I realized that like, Oh, that's actually taught like A, B, C or D on top of never mind Like, the fun that it was to be over there, but it did teach some really cool stuff.
I think I think in the next couple of weeks we'll we'll probably have to do a deep dive into just the whole experience. But um, that was so much fun. Yeah, because absolutely unpack it because like for six months, like there there's lifetimes worth of stories from that place. Going back to Boston, man. Uh, Boston's such a big sports city. Like, what has your experience been in that city? Kind of following the teams. Um. So yeah, the the. They're good, which obviously makes a big factor in like how prominent sports are. Like the Patriots, like we call it one of the greatest sporting franchises of all time. Um, I've been to one Patriots game. Like honestly, I, I have not um, dove into any sport. I, I did, did we go to a game when you came? I know I went with. Um, no, I think... Oh, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to... Uh, fuck it, did we go to a game? We went to Fenway Park, Boston against uh, the Yankees, yeah? Did we? <laughs> it really meant a lot to you. Jesus Christ! Fenway Park! Oh, yeah! Fenway Park. Um, so, yeah. Um, like I've, I've been to a bunch of games, um, but I haven't really... Like, could pick like three players out of a lineup from each team, maybe. Um, but it's absolutely massive. It's so ingrained into like um, Boston culture. And like, I'll stick with the Pats for now because that was probably the most prominent uh, sporting fandom of the people that I'm interacting with um, week in, week out. And it reminds me a lot of like Man United fandom back in the 90s, like an ABU, because people did not feel indifferent about the Patriots. People loved them or they fucking hated them with a passion. Um, and you were in one of those two buckets, so I was in the absolute minority, just being like, I don't really, I don't really care. I'll watch, I'll watch the games and stuff, because, because um, me and some of the Irish lads, we'd go and we'd have a few drinks on a Sunday, and uh, which is when often the Pats were playing, and it like, people would be there from nine a.m. waiting for like a, a three o'clock game, and it would just be such a scene, like a whole strip was like would like look like a, a you know Premier League final or a. Cup final. It was absolutely crazy every single weekend. And we just went for the scene because the energy was great. And like we were we were sport adjacent more so than anything. Like the, the beyond the background, but by the end of the day, I couldn't tell you what the score was. So that was the biggest experience with like the Pats is you just go because you know there'd be a bit of a scene. Um Fenway's an experience. Absolutely love that. And I, I'll never forget the time we went see <laughs> <laughs> Go team. Um but that's just an experience and it it drags for me. And I, because I can't liken it to any other sport that I've watched or, or sported or played or anything. Um, but to go for the experience, you go, you get like you get a hot dog, you get you get beers, you enjoy it. It's, you can chat during it. It's kind of a different pace, and that's good. So that's one of the things that I, I try and do, like when people come, because it's pretty accessible in that respect. And also the, the stadium is just such a cool thing to see. Um, but like those two sports already. Baseball is a strange one just because it's nearly a sport that was invented before television. Like in terms of a spectator sport, if you were to focus on a game of baseball for whatever it is, nine innings, it there's only very, very small moments of excitement. It's nearly when you're in the stadium, you realize that a lot of what the stadium does is provide a distraction from what's going on. It's nearly more of a social gathering and you might watch the big moments Whereas other sports, you might like football. Every single play matters. With with baseball and football, I when I have my tinfoil conspiracist hat on, if I was to imagine how were they created, it would be because they are perfect um, for Hollywood movies. 
because not a lot of other sports can translate to dramatic moments the same way baseball and NFL can. In that, like, one individual play, it can be built. There's a pause beforehand. There's tension. And, like, it's very clear. If it makes this throw, it's done. Um, if they make this hit, it's, it can all boil down to one person, which is rare for the majority of games in different sports. Like, obviously, there's penalties and free kicks and stuff like that. But, I mean, mostly, like, the things that I enjoy about soccer is it's build up. It's when a lot of things come together at once, which are difficult to kind of put into, like, a moment in a movie. But, and like, in football, there's the quarterback. He can single-handedly win this. And, and in baseball, there's it's, like, very much individuals versus full teams. So that's why I think they're a bit different from every other sport that we're watching, just because you just have to put a lot of time in for these um, individual payoff moments. And I'm sure people that don't like football or soccer will come back at me with, you, you say that watching a nil-nil game for 90 minutes. But um, like uh, it can be nil-nil and you can enjoy a game of football. But like it just seems like for baseball and, and American football, it's it's waiting for that one individual moment. And it's great on a highlight reel. Like you can watch YouTube highlights of those sports and it will probably be more entertaining or exciting than maybe a soccer one i think as well like when you look at soccer over there maybe one reason that it hasn't really set the world alight in in terms of america and it like it is a growing sport but it's so different compared to the big sports where a lot of their sports are very very direct like baseball hit a ball out of the stadium football throw the ball as far as you can for a touchdown basketball end to end whereas so much of soccer is the indirect build-up and kind of like changes of play or interceptions and stuff like that there's it's just ice hockey is the closest thing if i was to get into anything it would be ice hockey because it's very very similar to 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 soccer especially the view that you see and apologies i'm calling it soccer but i've been here six seven years but it's very very similar to like the build-up and the play from that and it can be very very elegant um but so if i was to get into anything that would be it. But again, like that's the third team now. And I think they're all like big, big winners. If not in the last few decades, certainly the last decade between like the, the, the Bruins for hockey, the, the Red Sox for baseball. I mean, these are just like nationally renowned as the top, top teams. And then there's the Celtics. You know, it's, it's, it's outrageous that the, the level of consistent winners across all those four sports in Boston. And that there is not, not, not to neglect the New England Revolutions, which is the soccer team. <laughs> I love I I think I was saying this to one of the lads uh yesterday like I love hearing American soccer club names like I love hearing Irish country <laughs> nightclub names. And again my favorite by far Kilkee the Abyss. Where did you end up last night? Oh my god. Oh we can't change it now we have it painted. <laughs> And that, that, that club used to have a class name. It used to be called On the Waterfront. And there was a picture of Brando. Oh I was like, God. that's pretty fucking cool. Maybe they lost a lawsuit and you just got depressed. <laughs> Brando said, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> just call the abyss. I give up. Um, man, one thing that comes to mind as well when you mentioned like, soccer. How good were the games of five-a-side we they used to real. get in Limerick? They were unreal. Like playing with the, mostly the same folks week in, week out too was, was, was absolutely awesome. Because you get a feel for who can do what, and it was just—it just clicked. Even if you lost, you enjoy playing it. Like I think, for me, like I've tried different forms of exercise, but I've never gotten the same buzz or the same flow. Where like those games of five aside, they were just such 
such a good pace and like everybody was at a pretty decent level where and like the big thing as well with five aside as well there were no cunts there was nobody that was going to do that it. was a bit, i remember i brought a guy once that got banned so he was like a friend of one of my mates and you got <laughs> you text me afterwards one of the lads said to you he can't come anymore and you know you knew the the lads that played ga or hurling because they just chop at you there were courses that just chopped at you but like yeah exactly everyone was competitive and passionate but not to the point where you know they do that like everyone cared but they wouldn't be freaking out or getting angry they just really want to play a good game one thing man like i have to say that i like i have serious respect for you that you've actually been in a ring and sparred yeah oh the the charity boxing match so the white collar box is yeah 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 so you train for four or five months and then you fight on the night I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of back... I initially agreed to that on Night Out. It was like a December, 12 pubs at Christmas, and one of the lads over here that had done it the year before convinced Gary, and then in true nature, Gary came over, got in my fucking ear. Oh, we should do that. No. 30 minutes later? Yeah, sure, why not? And then, like, emails start coming through in February, and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing again? <laughs> um, but one of those things where like, you're backed into it, and I still, like, will say it's one of the best things I've done in my life. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah, really rigorous training. Imagine, like man. the way it works is, is everyone that signs up gets paired up with uh, different boxing gyms and they train you. And then on the night, like the tickets sold, all that money goes to charity and the gyms are doing their part by training you. So depending on what gym you got will definitely dictate what level of training you got. So I got a gym, shout out Redline Boxing um, in Cambridge. And it, it's a proper boxing gym. Like some of the lads got like some of these more like lighter touch cardio fitness boxing gyms where they did proper boxing trainers but the ones we went to had like one shower you walk in and it's just a stink of sweat like guys are properly training there um like the training session should go for maybe an hour and a half our trainer kept us there like 45 minutes late every day until we got shit right i mean like the whole class people were like signing up and doing that it was absolutely incredible and horrible so the training was tough because that training gym is in cambridge north of the city i was living in quincy quite south of the city and I had to be there for 7 a.m. training, like, uh, once or twice a week. So I'd get up at 5, um, would be there for 7. Drink six raw eggs. You know, say, say goodbye to Adrian, head on my way. <laughs> um, so you, you do your training <laughs> at 7 for, like, two hours. And, I mean, like, I think back to Fight Club is that, like, you know, when you're getting punched, you're not thinking about, you know, that, that memo that you need to sign and submit by 12 o'clock. So it's a weird thing where having very focused stress and pressure in a moment will 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 kind of mute all the other pressures and stress and it's kind of a weird little mental vacation every so often but like i, I do that I, I do that from seven or whatever and i show up at work at nine and there was one occasion where i had a bit of a black eye just from the training that morning but it's also a sign of like okay this guy has done stuff before 9 a.m unfortunately when i had that black eye it was so soft in that because just the fat will bruise. It was only a little bit, and I'm showing you on camera now, but nobody can see. It's just along my eyelid. So it just looked like a bit of like eyeliner left on from a night before. So completely the opposite of the look that I wanted it to go for. <laughs> it just looked like I was just having a wild night. Like, no, 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 I was, I was training. It must give you a completely different perspective as well when you watch something like UFC or a proper boxing match where you understand the anxiety of in three weeks time i'm yes. going to have to step and that home. really sank in when people came up buying tickets so uh an old boss of mine i hadn't chatted to him at the time but uh, i know him very well now 
So I sent out an email to people in work like, hey, I'm in this charity boxing match. If you want to come up and buy tickets, you come to the event, it'll be a good time. And he never really said more than a few words to me. But knowing him now, he's, he's hilarious. He kind of came up and he bought a ticket. And he was like, good, I'm really looking forward to watching you get punched. And he walked off. And his dry sense of humor is terrific. But I was like, what the But like, as tickets got sold, it really is one of those things where like, okay, it's, it's actually happening now. Did I just invite 20 people that I work with to come and watch me get knocked the fuck out? you're terrified and like you, you do sparring in the gyms beforehand maybe like as a month or something beforehand you start sparring and that is a really I, I got fucked up more in sparring than i did on the fight night which goes to show the value of sparring for training because you just don't know like the second nature things to do like i was fighting the guy that was a bit taller than me he was skinnier but he was taller which and then i learned right that I, I know i've heard commentators say that like the value of reach and i'm like yeah yeah but you can just get in the inside so wrong about that like i just couldn't get close to him I take a step in and he just hit me at there like think of like comically having a hand on the forehead just keeping me at reach like that was the, i was just getting punched for two minutes because i couldn't get near him and i just got battered and there was another time i was fighting the guy much better than me and i was getting destroyed and what i did was like you know like a kid and like i'd never done this before it's just instincts kicked in i kind of put the hands like this and i was kind of already getting punched and i turned around as if that means i can't take anymore but that's not how it flies so like i turned around and like he kind of just came in from the side with an absolute batter one so like i had my back entirely to him and it went down like this and he just got much more shots in and like that was the reality of it like okay you certainly can't do that tough can't do that anymore but like i got much more fucked up you understand though you understand how you react under real yeah. pressure and adversity because yeah. like i've done team sports and like you always feel like you're in this together or whatever it is but, um, and even like sparring, you feel some degree when people get out of the ring and like ding, ding, and they start coming towards you. Like, okay, there's no one that can pick this up for you. There's no one that can like help you get from A to B. It doesn't matter how much support you've gotten that it, it's just you now. Nothing will make you feel as, as fuck, this is it. And especially on the fight night when the bell went off and like the trainers, you see them getting out and like, it doesn't feel like you're on your own until literally they're kind of start getting out of the ring and it's just oh oh wow the lights are really bright because it was like an amateur boxing match you had to get like certified amateur boxer or whatever just like approved to do it so in all capacities it was an amateur bout um and oh it was terrifying just the two-y and as you say like a somewhat better appreciation for people when they're actually fighting professionally like one thing was by the third uh, third round it was three rounds of two minutes which sounds like nothing um but oh my god i've never been so gassed in my life as as when i've been boxing and you know like i've, I've done a bit of running i've done a, plenty of half marathons i haven't really gone past that but like you know i'll run a lot and I'll, I'll go out and i'll run an hour and i'll be fine but like one minute boxing and you're absolutely gassed and there was points on like the second and third round again two minutes each but you're absolutely destroyed where you're both standing there and like the first thing you think of when you're standing there five seconds and no one's punching is, okay, there's an unspoken agreement right now. We're both catching our breath. And if they, if they take a step in, you're just, oh, you dick, we both got to go now. I know you don't want to do this either. Um, but as soon as the bell goes at the end, the two of you are just so happy for each other. It's a weird thing. And again, because no one really got knocked out the year that we did it. It was just kind of a point system. And two of you are just so glad for it to be done. Like straight away, like you're bumping gloves and you're just, you're just happy that it's over for the two of you. It must have been just an incredible experience to get through and to come out the other side and be able to look at it in a couple of months and say, fuck me, man, I did that. Like I'm like mentally, you must have been a slightly different person after coming through and putting yourself in 
that sort of adversity because like I I I do think like with men especially there is there is a little bit of insecurity in some people because they don't know how they would react yeah. when the chips are down call it a, an altercation in the street or a self-imposed pressure situation where you're putting yourself like basically in front of another man and yeah and like i absolutely hate um fighting on nights out like few things gets my goat as much as like people taking swings over something so stupid because i know far too many examples of someone getting a punch hitting the floor and they're either dead honestly or they're they're like they're 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 vegetable unfortunately just nothing like like it's so so stupid but like exactly that like if need be, like I can somewhat protect, you can take a swing, like you, you know what to do. Um, and something that comes to mind with that is, this is a bit of a tangent, but when I was working at the agency and one of the fortunate realities of working in the States when you're a big company is at least once a year, you'll get a training of what to do in situations of where there's like an active shooter in the building or if there's a disaster, like you get told all the individual steps, like what to do. And so there was a guy that would come in every year and kind of tell you like what to do. And he was very, very, um, didn't sugarcoat anything told you exactly like okay this is what's going to happen and he told you straight away he said like a very gruesome gruesome story about how um this guy came in with flowers to to see his wife he didn't have a pass she didn't like say he was there but they all knew him because he was the husband he came in with flowers and then and, and went up to her desk and he shot her in the head turns out they were going through like a separate she had like a restraining Jesus order but because none of the like the security was applied to stop him going that's exactly the face that everyone makes like oh god this guy is not messing around but like it's it's just the the terrifying trainings that you need to get in this stuff oh i digress but the reason that we were doing that is because you just run through again and again and again what you do in all these different situations and there's a there's a expression that either the marines or one, one of the branches of the military use over here you don't rise to the occasion you sink to your level of training. Yeah, you're nodding because you've definitely heard that one before too. And that is absolutely incredible. And that, like, you don't want to be thinking and like implementing things in the heat of a moment. And like exactly if someone's taking a swing, like my head will go away. My head will exactly know what to do because I've somewhat trained, which at least hopefully won't have to use, but can at least soften a punch or get out of the way or what have you. Yeah, like for me, I've, I've never sparred, but I have done one of those kind of three or four month intense boxing courses and while while it gives you a little bit of an inflated sense of ego i was talking to the lad that uh that i did it with and he was like you know how how do you think like do you think this helped you or do you think you'd be able to implement anything and i was like yeah no if if somebody jumped out from behind the corner and had pads and shouted a combination (laughs) i'd be able to hit the pads that's the only thing i know that i'd be able to do but only recently, uh, it was something that I probably, I wanted to do maybe six months ago, but I just kept putting it off and putting it off and saying, oh no, there's all these reasons why I shouldn't kind of push myself in that direction. Um, in January this year, I started like the basic, basic uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And when you mentioned the feel of a real gym is so different than anywhere else. Like when you walk in, and you can nearly sense the aura yeah. of train killers. It's a completely different uh, way of life than out in in the yeah. real world. Like you're not coming sense. in laughing like you're, you're, you're. People are doing this either for self defense or they're fucking serious about it. And that like everyone gets in gear with that. Yeah. Like you don't come in here 
for a bit of a like a jump around and whatever like you come in here to not fuck around what's really refreshing as well about those types of gyms is that regardless of what you are on the outside world they operate in a real sort of meritocracy way like nobody gives a fuck what your life is on the outside it's what you do on the mats it's what you do in the training you can it, as long as you you give your best in there you'll get respect no matter what it's, that it's level a is double-edged sword but i think it's really really good and that doesn't matter who the fuck you are whether you're like a big dick outside or you do this or that if you come in and you're unproven in any sense of training like they don't give a shit like you're 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 a grunt whatever like and same way as like people can come in that maybe you know aren't the strongest or most vocal outside but if you come in you put in the work you get all the credit inside it's incredible a lot of gyms have sort of a mantra and you again you only really understand it when you've been in a few times leave your ego at the door like even even in certain things like if you don't understand a drill ask because there's probably another couple of people there who don't understand as well and there's nothing worse than somebody showing you something five times and you're like yeah you know i have it and then you're just like i have no idea what to do it's it's this whole sense of self you have that you nearly need to go okay i you need to embrace that beginner's mindset and that exact example has happened far too many times for me when it's like one two three four four three four and like literally if your body is in the flow of it that's totally fine but if you literally don't get that the, the feeling i can liken it to when they be like one two three four five 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 like, okay I have no idea what to do after the second one. I get the same feeling when I'm paying for something with cash at a shop. And let's say it costs uh, $6.10. And I give them $10. And they're like, can you give me 10 cent more? That's an example I can deal with. But in that example where I give them more than is needed so the change can be easier, I, I, I freeze. <laughs> I cannot deal with that individual fiduciary issue. I'm the exact same, man. I cripple. I, I like. I just buckle when that exact situation happens. I just. It's like it's like a laptop that isn't working. It just goes. It just goes. Humans blank. need a blue screen of error just to like. Okay, they're struggling. Just leave them for five minutes and come back. Going back to, I suppose, America and maybe the mm -hmm. the cultural differences. Like you've been heavily involved in the working world in the business world. Have you noticed the nearly pedestal that americans will put in terms of what their professional identity is more than home yes so not everyone like most most of my friends that I've, I've known through work don't do that they're very similarly minded to me and like unless you ask them like you wouldn't know if they did but like a lot of people and i'm seeing a command of the woodwork and the best example of where this is we were talking about this like a day or two ago is is linkedin for me it's one of the most fascinating places just to just to study people um I, I people get more ire on linkedin than they do on youtube or any other social media platform people will get irate and they'll get aggressive there's such bragging and humble brags and any other kind of brags they want to spin it on linkedin because it's a big part of what they really? do yes um oh so like one example was so like uh, TripAdvisor, obviously a bunch of people including myself were were had it on the back and sent it away last week. More being furloughed and Airbnb. A bunch of folks, especially in the travel industry, are, are uh, um, been sent on the way in the last week because of COVID. And because of like I, all my connections with TripAdvisor, I'm seeing a bunch of those people. And every other post, someone being like, um, "So sad to see all my TripAdvisor colleagues go on their way." Um, 
let me know if you guys need a need any support or anything like that. But that's a perfectly nice message. But so many of them will go on past just to either communicate, but I'm still here. So sad to see some of my colleagues leave. And it's like, oh, oh, um, it's just a bit, oof, not great. Because I, so I, I have so little patience for that. I think that maybe is, is a big thing of like when an Irishman over here. I don't know what it is. Um, I'm seeing a lot of it too with even Irish students coming through. I don't know how it appears in my feed, but, um, you know, so, 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 so proud to have gotten this. Every single post is the most shameless brag you'll ever see. Oh my God, it's terrible. In terms of like what I noticed over there is the first question all the time when you meet somebody new, it's like, what do you do? It's, it's not like, what are you interested in? Who are you? Where are you from? I I just found myself that in America it's nearly what you do is who you are and with something like COVID where there's going to be so many layoffs because the culture and the society is so nearly the hierarchy of what people value like if you're not productive there can be like a real sort of decrease in maybe your mental well-being when you lose that sense of self so that's kind of one of the worrying things when so many people are being laid off along with the economic factors and trying to support families. But it's it's nearly like you lose a huge chunk of your sense of self, especially in a country like America that values work so much. Part of what that is, is that um, and it's mostly a positive thing. And this this is a bit of a slight at, at, like at Ireland now a bit, but it's it's they take great pride in what they do over here, which I think is such a such a good thing. And that was something that I learned very, very quickly of like um, working in a big American company in meetings. Like they'll be like, and 30 seconds of small talk at the start of a meeting. But when the meeting starts, there's no fucking joking. Stop. No, no jokes. We're, we're talking about business. We can, we can talk afterwards, whatever. And like I was used to like working in Ireland where you'd like still, you'd, if there was something funny to be said or something funny happened, you'd, you'd joke during the meeting. Um, but no, people kind of are very much, okay, we'll do our small talk. Meeting starts. You change the way you talk if need be. You kind of, and that just means like inflection and things like that. But people very much are like almost into a different mode when it starts. And I think broadly, it's a very, very good term thing that they're kind of taking that level of pride in what they do. But the problem then, as you say, is that if, you, if it's such a big part of how you define yourself, which I think is they're not, one does not necessarily come with the other. But if that is a big part of what you do um, and it's taken away, oof. It, it's, it's just kind of, it's like, I, and, it, and it just seems to be maybe a slight difference between the States and Ireland. It's like in Ireland, it's more what you do. Whereas in America, there does seem to be a stronger sense of it's who you are. Like there's, there seems to be something linked in there. Um, going, I suppose, moving on to you were raised in an Irish drinking culture. Were there any kind of cultural shocks when you moved to the States and maybe especially Boston, you probably think that there's going to be a very, very similar type of drinking culture there. Like, how did you find that? The, the one that comes to mind is, um, Hey, we're going for a few drinks after work today on a Thursday. And I, I, we go have a drink or two. I'm ready for like, all right, this is great. I'm having a good time. I can't wait for, you know, later on tonight, we all end up in the nightclub, which was the given assumption. Well, people have two beers and they go home. Honestly, I was there for a year. I was in the country a year uh, before I kind of had to, <laughs> I was almost 
conditioned that like I was salivating for like a nightclub and partying after two beers during the week when like, no, 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 just go home, get a nice <laughs> sleep. And I had to kind of just adjust to that. That was a big, big shock. The people would just go for a beer or two in the middle of the week and then go home. And again, I'm attributing that to America when it might just be working at a big company. So a lot of these might just be pure, pure coincidence, but that was a big, big shock. And people still seemed kind of pretty buttoned up even when they would go for a drink or two. They'd have a drink or two, but they were still very much guarded. And like a big thing, I guess, about the folks, the friends that I've made there were the people that would like have a drink or two and then on the side make a very, very out there joke. And I'd be like, they're my people. They're my people. They're just, <laughs> they're just making yeah, they're yeah, just kind yeah, of yeah. very quickly like expose the part of their personality and then put it back away. And it's like, oh, oh you're twisted. And that like is a big bond. Yeah. You're like me. <laughs> and that kind of is, it's, it's a big bonding moment. A lot of people wouldn't do that. They go for a beer or two. But like, they're just so guarded. And they, they, they'll often talk, and this is just stuff that I don't love to chat about. They'll just small talk again and again and again versus what I think is an Irish thing. And certainly for the Irish friends over here is that most of the time is that you need to be sharing. If, you're, if you have the attention of the group and you're saying something, this story better be worth the payoff. If in 20 seconds this is not paid off and laugh or something fascinating, you're wasting everybody's time. And that pretty much means that someone else, usually Gary, will jump in and say something to make it worth their time by either sneering you or saying a joke or something. And honestly, I love that model because you're guaranteed that when you all meet up, you're either going to be having a laugh, telling a funny story of what happened in the past. But like a lot of small talk and networking over here is, you know, you know what you do over the weekend. Um, which is usually they just they they, they want you to say uh, oh not much how about you nothing much like, they don't actually want information that also took me a year to learn in that they don't want you to unload what you did over the weekend it was me and a Scottish uh, girl okay, a friend of mine she uh, was working in the same company and we both had to learn that like when people say hey how was your weekend don't just, this is not a confessional box don't just unload everything just say good how's yours good interaction concluded would you find that um with Americans, there's maybe less of a, a self-deprecating humor. Whereas like in Ireland, again, it's kind of similar to like the only, the only places in Ireland where you can kind of big yourself up are your CV and your Tinder profile. It's like, if you're telling stories about how great I am, everybody just looks at you with disgust and is like, who's this fella? I'll, I'll reiterate again that the American friends that I've made the reason that I hang out with them is because they're not that way. And it literally was that like, okay, the, the, a lot of people aren't like this, but broadly I'll say that's exactly the way it is, that it is a little less common to make itself, you know, deprecating jokes. And again, I'm completely generalizing. Like I, I spent years over there and fuck it. I loved the people that I met and I love that kind of the culture of America and the no, positivity. That's honestly it. And that was kind of my assumption too. And I, a big, not so much a culture shock, but a learning that I had in, in that like externally America, and this is pre-Trump, is not portrayed in the best way. I mean, obviously it has like some of the biggest companies in the world, probably the best schools in the world, or at least the, the third level education schools in the world. But what makes it out is, are the Kardashians. Like here, here's what's wrong today on the news. All the worst shit in the world. Um, but like when I was um, working at that agency, the first job, oh my God, everyone was brilliant. At least everyone that I was working with day to day were absolute geniuses that I like was just trying to understand what was going on from moment to moment. And I honestly felt so bad for thinking that like um, 
it was what it was portrayed that the kind of don't have that bit of a wit or a bit of humor like just a bit you know um what we've seen externally was so so far off that just what what gets shown is the worst honestly because there, there are people that i've worked with that are so fucking smart that you know even even if i led a more educational life i think i'd have difficulty like getting to that level which is really really motivational um but it's kind of that what's what's shown and what's the majority and it's also typically the people that are like that are the loudest which is a big fucking thing so if you're if you're meeting a room with 10 people probably the one who's going to be the loudest and the one you're going to be talking to is is that one that either doesn't have a lot to say or either will, won't, won't be the first one to make a joke of himself you know it's, it's the under the breath humor that you have to listen closely to hear and those are the ones that you know do have that like i'm going to say irish sense of humor but it's not an irish sense of humor it's just like a self-deprecating true it's nearly like that that vocal minority appears everywhere like if you look at twitter people talk about how twitter is incredibly toxic but that's because probably two percent of people who use twitter are the loudest on it and they're the voices that are heard the whole time and um, man i'm i'm conscious of time but uh i suppose one more thing that i'd be curious to kind of get your thoughts on there now that we've locked down and i know that ireland's lockdown is a little bit different than maybe the lockdown that you're experiencing in boston but the fact that we've had to slow or in a sense nearly stop the momentum of our lives and we've all kind of been given this time to maybe contemplate what's working and what's not has has the time you've had to think about life changed your perspective on anything a little bit is like professional evaluation which is probably the most superficial thing because as i mentioned earlier like i'm pretty grateful for most things like it's fine like my, my work doesn't define too much of me like it, it's i want to like what i do but beyond that i want to not think about what i do when i'm outside the office um pretty grateful most of the time like I, I moved over for work but like for the idea of like to get a job which is more enjoyable but didn't move over for this one job which is now gone or what have you um in terms of what's still important or what was important is still important. Like, you know, I'm still able to chat to the family. That's good. Like my family's healthy. Everything else after that is like, is, is, is yeah. not important. It's, it's circumstantial, which is kind of fine. And this is coming from a guy, you know, who, who with hundreds and thousands of other people was like, go last week. I'm like, All right, I'll find something else. It's fine. Jesus Christ. I'm healthy. Um, and looking on the bright side, it's amazing that you really get a sense of what is important from this time though. Like, uh, as you said, like, it's really, really fascinating that the first thing you yeah. basically mentioned. Like, that they're healthy because my, my mom was traveling over to my sister who was pregnant with a third child. This was a stress ball. So my mom, um, who doesn't have the best immune system, was traveling over to visit my sister in Jersey just before my sister was giving birth to her third child when Corona was ramping up. Travel bans were just about to come in. And everyone was still a little unsure of like what you could catch when you travel. And so there was a lot of balls there in the air. And it was three days before my mom was supposed to fly over. Trump was like, we're banning all travel from these countries. And I was like, okay, so what's going to happen here or what could happen here is, okay, if my mom travels, she might get sick. If she does, then she's going to be in a house with two, soon to be three kids and someone's pregnant. If she can't make it over, my sister needed her to be over to help. And literally that's where the base was almost like similarly when I first came over to Boston of like seeing what the worst case scenario could be and how bad it could be. Everything else after that is 
in gravy. My mom was here. She, she traveled. She was fine. No one got sick. My sister had the baby. Everyone's a-okay. My mom has since come back to Ireland. Everyone's doing great. So literally it was, okay, I have an idea of what bad is based on my like my my spiral of thought process then. Like, everyone's fine. Everything else is going to be good. Um, so that's a big thing. And also like making the most of it. I mean, I like to stay at home on Sundays. So literally what I've been saying to Becca is just, okay, we just have to, we just have to stockpile our Sundays. Just do a bunch of Sundays now because we can't leave too much. Like we have the dog. We can't see people too often. And what I like in it too is like, and I imagine everyone has had this like idea from time to time of what would it be like if we just moved to a cabin in the middle of nowhere and just got a dog and just stayed there. That's literally what we have now because we're isolated, the two of us in the house with a dog. Just imagine the outside is a bit different, but like it's kind of great. Just wake up with the dog, take him for walks, hang out. Um, like it's never, it's hopefully not going to be like this ever again. And I guarantee there's going to be people at the end of this of like, oh, I just want some time to stay at home. Then you shouldn't have been complaining when you had to stay at home for six months. So I'm just trying to get it out of the way now. When it's all done, like be super, super social. Yeah, no, you're dead right. Like for me, I suppose the few things that I've really kind of been thinking about is like how important your health is when externally things are bad like when you hear something like COVID-19 and the hype around it when it was sweeping across Europe like I, I was just so happy that I had maybe an okay uh, level of health but it's it's made me nearly just completely uh, look at everything I'm doing again and thinking what's working what's not and how can I maybe make incremental improvements in my health um another thing is that and i think this is the same for a lot of people it's like if you're maybe working in a certain industry and you're doing it to nearly play the safe game because it's it's the right thing to do if that safe job that maybe you're not that passionate about can be taken away in the next couple of months or has already been taken away why aren't you just maybe going to do the things you want to do? Because like you mentioned a really good... Um... I'm going I'm to attribute it to Jim Carrey because that's what the internet told me when I first saw it. But it's like um, when he was asked or when he was going into comedy or something, something his father said to him or some... I, the, the details are, are hazy. As you will recall from when you were in Boston and I was giving you tours, the specifics tend to elude me. <laughs> what's that bridge called Chris question, Kev. I don't know anything um, the quote was pretty much you can fail at what you don't want to do so like might as well go for something that you want to do like if the best case scenario is you get something you kind of want why wouldn't you just try and get what you really really want and I, what I'll say now is I think of all folks I absolutely agree with that Like, because I've taken this as an opportunity too in the last week to realise alright what I've wanted to do for like 12 months now is make a bit of a pivot into this career path which is kind of adjacent to what I'm doing. So what I've been doing is I've been like fast tracking a lot of courses and certifications and like self-learning stuff to teach myself, which I wouldn't have gotten the boot or kick to do if I was still working full time. So that's kind of a bonus. But I think of all folks that like can't be faulted for already doing exactly what they want to do would be yourself. Because like all the all the stuff that you've been doing now the last year or two between like the 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 doing the stand-up shows and this podcast and stuff, like, hey, I'm gonna do this. All right, I'm gonna do this. Um of like I'm curious to see what next gear you could have been kicked into from this. I'm like, wait, that was conservative list of stuff you wanted to do? <laughs> I, 
like the way I've been thinking about it as well is like anything that I have been putting off for no reason like you're you're always like oh yeah there'll always be a time to do that this has shown us that like time is your most important gift and you can't nearly say oh in five years i'll be able to do this or in 10 years i'll be able to do this if you want to do something the and the best time to do it is is now and just just start because that was that's what was fucking me over for a while like um like even with something like this podcast i'd be kind of a maybe a bit of a perfectionist where I'm like, oh, I have to have this and I have to have that. And then I try to get too far ahead of myself and I'm like, Kev, you haven't even fucking started. You haven't released one episode. You're just recording your conversations like fucking Richard Nixon. You're a maniac. Like. <laughs> Fine line between a successful podcaster and paranoid schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> but this whole situation has showed me that like, if you want to do something, just fuck the judgment. Like just if you, if you feel that you want to do it, just start. Just start and see That's where it, it goes. That, that, that could be one big positive coming out of all this that will give people the push. Chris, man, uh, I'm conscious of your time, but uh, thank you so much for sitting down and doing yeah. this. I really appreciate it's it. Right time. Jeez, how long have we been talking? Ooh, don't worry, I'll send my invoice. I'll, let's, let's, I'll, 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 I'll round it at two, it's fine. <laughs> no, of course, great catching up. Man, we'll leave it there, but uh, let's try I'll, and I'll do get, this again. I'll get a future. decent mic and we'll chat. Thanks, man. Peace. Peace.